Hello and welcome to Yesterday in Travel. My name is Brian and I'm joined as always by Kalina. Hi Kalina. Konnichiwa, Brian. <laughs> Today we're going to be discussing Japan, one of the world's top travel destinations, but it wasn't always that way. For much of the 18th and 19th centuries, it was sealed off from outsiders, and in the 20th century, World War II and the resulting destruction led to renewed isolation. But post-war reconstruction created an economic boom and a newfound effort to integrate into the global community. Enter the 1964 Tokyo Summer Olympics, which provided the country with its first post-war opportunity to show off its remarkable recovery on the world stage. Today, we'll delve into how this one enormous event changed travel in Japan, as well as travel within Japan itself. But first, let's look at what's happening in travel news this week. Kalina, you want to go first? Sure. First of all, the question of this whole year has been, is flying safe? And the answer is still up in the air, so to say. Um, there was a study. <laughs> thank you for laughing. There was a study paid for by some airlines, a Harvard study that says it is safe or as safe as other routine activities. But there was a recent COVID outbreak on a seven hour flight to Ireland where apparently people were wearing masks. So it seems like there is still some unknowns there. I also want to add that if you want to go to Costa Rica, all 50 states are now allowed to go to Costa Rica. That came out a few mm -hmm. days ago. Mm -hmm. And you don't need a negative COVID test, but you do need to have medical insurance mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. cover any COVID treatments abroad. Yeah, I've seen I've seen a lot of different places doing that. I think the Bahamas and where they're requiring uh, medical insurance now as another element mm -hmm. to allowing people in. Yeah, that's smart. Cool. Yeah. One thing I also wanted to mention is Marriott Hotels. Uh, I, I read an article that they are starting to allow day passes for people who want to work out of hotel rooms. Hmm. So they offer like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. booking and you they're charging less for this type of booking, 25 to 50% discounts on, on a room with the idea that people are so desperate to get out of their homes <laughs> and have some privacy that they're going to go for this. And they're piloting it, I guess, in a few different locations. It struck me because... And I've been trying to see how airlines and and hotels and and uh, like the tourist industry in general is responding to COVID. And this is sort of this is being plugged by Marriott as like this way that they're responding to it and trying to earn some revenue, even despite the fact that no one's traveling. And it strikes me as something that's actually not not a great idea. It seems like hmm. I can't imagine who is going to be paying even a 25 or 50% discount on, on a room to be able to like sit in an empty hotel room and sit at, you know, the little desk that they have in a hotel room to like use Wi-Fi and, and work. It just seems crazy. I looked up the average price of a Marriott hotel room in 2019 is $200. So are people really going to pay a hundred to 150 bucks a day to mm -hmm. work out of an empty hotel room they say they're offering free breakfast and complimentary cocktails and well the there evenings. you go cocktails that makes up for it a little bit but also is it really attractive to people to go to a hotel bar to drink a free cocktail is that like a thing people are wanting i don't know 
seems like kind of a stupid <laughs> idea. It seems like a weird thing that they're promoting on the internet as like this way that like they're being innovative about uh, dealing with COVID. Just sort of another depressing stat in all of this. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, like, what can we possibly do? Oh, maybe this, maybe this. Yeah. I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're trying to come up with things, but yeah. Anyway, that struck me as, as something kind of uh, interesting. Also, throughput at airports, um, which we have been keeping track of this whole time, continues to tick up slightly. I did hear a, a week ago the United States surpassed the one million travelers mark right. um, in, a, in, a, in a day, which was kind of this milestone that people were excited about. Of course, it immediately went back down to below a million. We haven't hit a million again. And we're still at around in the 30s. You know, we've been hovering around 30%. We're now ticking up to 36% of normal levels of travel. Mm. And if you look at the breakdown, actually, between domestic and international travel for for that 36% average, it's 49% for domestic air travel and 12% for international travel. So that does at least give us a little more of a sense of, okay, at least domestically, we're at almost 50%. There are people traveling domestically, but you know it's offset by 12% internationally. So we're still kind of spinning our wheels. And you know, as I'm sure everyone's aware of, the news lately has been spikes in lots of states, more lockdowns, more dire predictions by Anthony Fauci and politicians and local governments saying that it's going to be a rough winter. And so nothing good on the horizon. Yeah. Bill de Blasio has told New Yorkers at least to avoid holiday travel if they can, which is kind of sad. I'm sure people will still be traveling a bit for the holidays. Uh, Big sigh. Okay. Well, let's get into uh, (laughs) travel history then. Um, What made 1964 such an important year for travel in Japan? Yeah. So one thing that happened, I mean, there are a few things that happened in 1964, but one thing that happened was the restrictions on Japanese tourists, Japanese who wanted to leave Japan and be tourists in other places were lifted in 1964, early on in the year. So there had been restrictions that were placed on Japanese citizens after the war to try to get them to, to ensure that they would spend their money domestically and not spend their money abroad since the country was so desperate economically for money. So they had these restrictions that were put in place and they lifted those. They allowed Japanese people to start traveling. There had been some people that were already traveling, but it was very minimal and it was, you know, looked down upon. Uh, it was almost like these days where people travel, you know, and throw up pictures on their Instagram and then people shame them for for going places. When they made this change and started allowing Japanese tourists to travel, they still only allowed them a spending limit of $500 total during their trip. So people could go to the US, they could go to Europe, but they were limited by, you know, officially, legally only being allowed to spend $500 during their entire trip. So that kind of limited the, the duration of their trips. And that was all an effort to allow travel, but continue to keep as much money in Japan as possible. And it was actually interesting. There were articles in newspapers in the Times. There was an article about uh, this pent-up desire of Japanese people to travel. And some of the main places that they wanted to go were Hawaii, Hong Kong, and then mainland United States. So um, it's interesting. Hawaii, can you know, we've talked about Hawaii and we've talked about Japanese travel to Hawaii a little bit before on other episodes. But 
Hawaii was even, you know, in the sixties was this desirable destination for Japanese people as they started to, to re-enter sort of the tourist sphere. And, we, you know, if you look at the numbers, very few people in 1964 were actually traveling. You know, very few Japanese people were actually leaving the country to travel. It was around 127,000 people, but it steadily grew and grew and grew. Ten years later, it was at 2 million. By the 90s, it was at 10 million. Today, it's around 20 million. So they kind of have seen this steady, steady growth over the over the decades to, you know, huge levels of travel, just like we've seen all over the world. And the second thing that happened in 1964, which we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about, is the Tokyo Olympics, which uh, so, so Japan hosted the Summer Olympics in Tokyo in 1964 in October. And it was a huge deal, as the Olympics always are. We all know that the Olympics these days is this huge global event that attracts the attention of people from all over the world, uh, from for the competitions and the melodramatic storylines about athletes, but it also has all sorts of geopolitical undertones and is kind of this massive PR event for the host country. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about how this idea of PR and global exposure played into these Olympics and specifically how travel factored into all of this in the Japanese context. Yeah. So in 1964, looking back, or only 20 years from World War II, Tokyo had actually won the right to host the Olympics in 1940. But because of the war and the Japan invasion of China, um, the Olympics were canceled. So 1964, Tokyo hosting the Olympics is highly, highly symbolic. Obviously, the U.S. had bombed Japan at the end of World War II using atomic bombs for the first time. Japan was a foe of the United States and the West, and one of the cities bombed was Hiroshima, completely devastated. So one part of the symbolism of the Tokyo Olympics was that it was a, a student from Hiroshima who carried the Olympic torch. The, his name was uh, Yoshinori Sakai, and he was chosen because he was born on August 6, 1945, the day the bomb um, hit Hiroshima. So this is like an homage to the victims of that attack and a call for world peace. The Olympics 1964 for Japan and for Tokyo are also a chance for the country to just reinvent itself, kind of reintroduce itself to the world. The New York Times called it Tokyo's 20-year transformation from a firebombed ruin to an ultra-modern megalopolis, which I think I said right. Um, they also said, <laughs> thank you, they also said uh, those first Tokyo Olympics served as a debutante ball for democratic post-war Japan, which reintroduced itself to the world not only through sport, but also through design. In addition, um, this is the first time the Olympics are held in Asia, and it's also the first time the Olympics are broadcast across the world. The U.S. president at the time, Lyndon Johnson, was told that uh, having an Olympics broadcast would make the, the Democrats look good. I'm not really sure how that would make the Democrats look good, but he was told that and he was for it. So he gave the green light. I love that. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like it's it's the same thing as like Biden's campaign people telling him he needs to like do a snapchat or something you know it's mm. like I, yeah I, my, to the youth. my understanding was that yeah it was like it makes stodgy old old white man politicians look like they are relevant you know they're like aware of what's cool mm -hmm. right which exactly. is like a, which has been going on forever <laughs> it's, it's a tradition in american politics yes yeah. Um, you're going to get into this later, but computers were also used as timing devices 
for the first time in these Olympics. And one British journalist calls um, the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, Olympics the science fiction Olympics because of all these new uh, technological displays. So the world's eyes on Tokyo and the city wants to impress, Japan wants to impress. And what they do will completely redefine how the world views Japan. Um, it'll also redefine the city of Tokyo. Okay, gotcha. So this was basically a coming out celebration for Japan after the war uh, and a way for them to show off how much they were bouncing back. So what sorts of things do they do to actually prepare for the games and all eyes being on, on Tokyo? Yeah, so Tokyo underwent this massive development and uh, what's the word? Tokyo just completely changed for the Olympics, basically. In the, worlds of one, in the words of one visitor, um, he described Tokyo as a sprawl of old wooden houses, scabrous shanties, cheaply constructed uh, staccato buildings, and donchi, which are crowded, cramped Soviet-style apartment blocks. Um, as the Olympics progress, suddenly there are 100 kilometers of new highways. There's a new monorail from the international airport to downtown. There's modern plumbing throughout the city. New structures are built um, throughout the city. The new Olympic Village is actually built on the grounds of U.S. military housing. And today there's actually one house that remains. It was the Dutch team's house. It's a monument to the 64 Olympics. And the, um, the Nippon Budokan was constructed to host judo. It's since become a popular spot for musical groups uh, to record live albums, which is something that Bob Dylan did. And the Beatles performed there, throwback to our, our Beatles episode. Um, well, not to our episode, but to the Beatles in general. They were the first Western group to perform there. And many thought this was just an outrage um, that they'd come to kind of defile this martial arts space. The Tokyo had all these streetcar lines in the city. These were phased out. Today, there's just one streetcar uh, line left. Um, Time magazine says, Out of the jungle of concrete mixers, mud and timber that has been Tokyo for years, the city has emerged as from a chrysalis to stand glitteringly ready for the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, the point is that the city completely transformed in order to host the games because they really did see it as like a, a moment to redefine themselves to the world. So... Another huge project that was completed just weeks before the Olympics and proved to have the greatest impact on travel within Japan was the bullet train or Shinkansen. Yeah, Shinkansen. Oh, Shinkansen, which connected Tokyo to Osaka, uh, Japan's second largest metropolitan area. So what can you tell us about this new type of train system and the effects it had on travel within Japan? Yeah, the train system was a huge deal. They had been, you know, preparing for years and years to unveil this just prior to the Olympics as part of this PR event to show the world what they've been up to and sort of their technological prowess. You know, they had well overspent their budget. They had the head leads of the project, the head engineer and the president of the company that was developing it had already had to resign over high the high cost of the entire thing but the train it, itself was absolutely revolutionary um even in this time in the 60s as more and more people were starting to fly and airplane travel was becoming kind of the new futuristic you know the the new travel method for long distances of the future japan was sort of doubling down on train travel um and they actually developed this train that was super revolutionary it was basically the train ran at about two times the speed of any other trains they had ever had, you know, 
So there were speeds of up to 210 miles per hour, per hour at that time. I think they've even increased those speeds. So that, that, that essentially meant that they were having the time to, it took to get between major cities. So they, uh, the initial line ran between Tokyo and Osaka, as we said. It allowed business people to leave Tokyo in the morning for a meeting, you know, for a lunch meeting in Osaka, and then still get back by the end of the day to be able to come home and, and have dinner at their own house in Tokyo. The train itself had a variety of interesting new technological features that had never been done before. Um, for one, they widened the actual train track, which allowed for more stability, allowing them to go, go faster. But they also cut down the number of sharp turns that the train made, which also allowed it to move faster along the track since there was less of a chance that it would fly off due to a sharp turn. And to do that, they ended up having to build all sorts of new tunnels and bridges to cut through the landscape. Japan is a very mountainous landscape. So lots of tunnels, lots of bridges to kind of straighten out the track and that uh, that allowed it to reach higher speeds. Another innovation was the switch from a locomotive at the front of the train, which provided all of the you know the propulsion, you know the engine that pulled everything, to engines in multiple cars along the train. So instead of just one car at the front pulling everything and all the other cars just being pulled along, all the engines in each car worked together to push the train forward. And that ended up being more efficient and allowing them to, to move faster. But it also it made track maintenance less of an issue because it evened out the weight of the train across all the different cars. So there was just less upkeep that needed to be done on the track because the front, you know, typically the locomotive was this huge, heavy car at the front that would cause a lot of damage to the rails over time. So ultimately, what this did is it saved in terms of work hours, it saved lots of time for Japanese business people. They could travel back and forth between the major cities along the eastern seaboard of Japan. So it saved millions of work hours. It also saved lots of energy because much of that travel, if it hadn't happened through trains, it would have happened through through air travel. And the amount of petroleum waste used to fly between those between major cities um, is way more than the amount of energy used on an electric train that doesn't have to go up into you know at thirty five thousand feet and then come down. So saved lots of energy. It saved them from importing huge amounts of oil, and it was financially successful. It eventually extended north and south of Tokyo all along the eastern seaboard. Um, so its success was evident in its expansion over the years to two cities all along the islands. And they even also exported their technologies eventually in the 70s to France and Germany who were building their own fast trains. And so they used a lot of the technologies that Japan had developed um, for their train. I don't know if it was this train, but there was some train in Japan a few years ago that they got it. There was some controversy because they left, I think, like 20 seconds early. And the like the train like apologized People were like really upset because trains in Japan are so on time all the time. Um, yeah, yeah, I did read. I mean, the trains are super on time there. And the only times that they have delays, I didn't hear about that, about a train leaving early. But the only time they do have delays is in on some of the newer lines that extend into the mountainous regions of the country where there's 
snowfall. I mean, they're, mm. they're talking about how like sometimes when there's like two feet of snowfall, the trains are delayed, like, you know, 10 minutes or something. And this yeah. is like a huge issue. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that's fair though. Act of God delays. Totally. Um, like that. All right. So, so one thing the New York times says about this transformation in Japan, um, they say trolleys went out, elevated highways came in. The city got a new sewer system, a new port, two new subway lines, and serious pollution. So uh, amidst all these changes and all this development, there were some negative impacts. Certainly. Yeah, like like anywhere, um, you know, when there's massive development, whether it's, you know, for tourism or otherwise, um, there's always controversies around the environmental impacts. And Tokyo was, of course, no exception. There were a lot of complaints that the city smelled bad because there was so much concrete being poured before the Olympics that there was this sort of acrid, reeky smell throughout the city. You know, noise pollution uh, because there was just so much construction going on day and night. You know, they even leading up to, to the Olympics, they were pushing really hard to move fast. And so they had construction crews working at night and lights on outside. So people had to put up blinds to block out the light and um, you know, wear earplugs and those sorts of things. So quality of life in the city definitely was was kind of rough during that period before the Olympics. There were also, you know, Tokyo is along a bay and there's lots of fisheries where fishermen, you know, just low level fishing was going on. And all of that was polluted. You know, all these local inlets with fisheries were no longer usable. And lots of them were filled in with concrete in some cases or just turned into sort of like industrial wastelands. And uh, lots of people were dislocated, of course, and had to be moved outside of the city to make way for new projects. And uh, there was an issue with cats and dogs, stray cats and dogs, which is something that we I've heard about in Olympics since then, too. It's in lots of countries, if they have a stray dog and cat problem before the Olympics, they go through and you know they, they basically scoop them up and I think essentially put them to death. So not a nice thing to think about. Um, and certainly lots of people have a problem with that that practice yeah it does happen with most olympics people are dislocated animals are yeah yeah Yeah. so but despite all these controversies in 1964 can we say that the olympics in tokyo were a success for japan i think the answer is yes i think you know in terms of the olympics themselves they went off without a hitch um and in terms of this whole idea of japan opening up to the world and becoming integrated into sort of the Western economic global sphere. Certainly, um, Japan has continued to be a success. And in terms of travel, ever since 1964, Japan has continued to see an increase of travelers coming to the country as tourists. You know, it's at that time, there were very few, few tourists. So to see an American or to see a non, a non-Japanese person was a real um, was was a very new phenomenon at the time, but over the years, you know, they started to in- see more and more travelers. By 19- the mid nineteen seventies, they were getting about a million travelers a year. By twenty thirteen, they were getting ten million travels a year, and then it really exploded. Actually, in the past decade or so, um, so at this point, they see about thirty thousand, thirty million travelers um, per year. So, um, so in that sense certainly a success. Lots of travelers coming into the, into the country. 
experiencing, appreciating, understanding their culture and their history better. The Shinkansen also was a huge success, one of the most traveled on train lines and one of the most profitable train lines ever. The Japanese culture certainly began to become shared across the world. Their reputation as a technological hub started in, in these games. And as you mentioned earlier, the, these 1964 games were the first to utilize computers in a major way. So just for timing and the starting gun for races, they were now connected, actually connected digitally to computers so that they could have official counts, start and stop counts. And they used, for the first time, they used uh, a new watch company to make all these calculations. And they actually used a Japanese company. The company Seiko was used for the first time. Previously to, in the Olympics, they had been using other European timepiece companies. So Seiko got a big plug at the Olympics and kind of everything went off without a hitch. So so yeah, very successful. Um, there was even a, a Cary Grant movie that was shot during the Olympics uh, on site in Tokyo. I happened to watch the movie the other day and it was not a great movie. I don't recommend actually watching it, but it did have some interesting little tidbits. I mean, aside from the fact that it was this Hollywood movie for U.S. consumption that was made in Tokyo and was sort of showing off Japan generally, they also had these little nuggets where they, you know, part of the plot revolved around these remote control sensors that they were using. And in the movie, there were featured all these other small little technological gadgets, like a mini tape recorder, which was something that was very novel at the time. And this tiny little TV that he, uh, that Cary Grant is, is watching at one point. So it's sort of these little nuggets where Americans watching this would come away from, from the movie, aside from hopefully being entertained, they would be seeing these little elements that kind of communicated that Japan was this new up and coming country with all these interesting little technological features, uh, things going on um, that made it sort of cutting edge. You mentioned the Soviet subplot too, which, which I thought, or you did, we were talking about this before, which is interesting because as the games were like gearing up, Bobby Kennedy said to LBJ, like, we gotta, we gotta beat the Soviets in the Olympics just for like symbolism's sake. You know, the Americans gotta, yeah, yeah, gotta perform. Yeah. It's interesting. The movie would also incorporate, of course, like Cold War stuff as well. Yeah. From everything I've read, this was when the cold, I mean, the Cold War was really heating up. And so this Olympics was specifically heated in terms of the rivalries between the Russians and the Americans. I guess, I mean, this in 64, this must, you know, this was right after. I'm the Cuban Missile the, Crisis? Yeah, the Cuban yeah. Missile Crisis. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see there's this Russian subplot in the movie. The mm -hmm. Russians are certainly, in the movie, they're portrayed comically and sort of as these like bungling fools, mm -hmm. uh, which fits uh, with the time. Yes. Um, so now we've got, so, so we've got the Olympics coming up in Tokyo again. We've got the 20, yes. they were supposed to happen in 2020. They're still mm -hmm. being called the 2020 Olympics. Is that true? They are. Yeah. Tokyo 2020. What do we know about what's happening with these Olympics? I mean, it's all, it's also uncertain. They are planning to happen um, in 2021. Tokyo wants to do it. I think it's hard to say what's going to happen in the world it seems like sort of impossible to, you know, get all these people to travel there and, and to be, do it safely. But at the same time, there's new stuff like rapid tests and I don't know. 
who knows what's going to happen in the next few months. Um, but yeah. if, the, if the Olympics do happen, I think there's going to be this great sense of symbolism, just like in 1964 about the world being like back after COVID and mm -hmm. especially as a symbol for travel to see people from all these different countries and cultures all together again. I think this Olympics and fingers crossed that it happens in 2021 will play a very similar role. Japan too, um, from what I've read, is planning to like once again flex its technological muscles and have things like robots in the stands taking orders and delivering like drinks and stuff. Awesome. Of course. So <laughs> yeah, so it could be a very, I mean, it's such the Olympics are despite the controversies that come with every game, they're such a hopeful event. Um, so I hope that we'll see it happen next year and that it'll act as sort of like a a symbol of of optimism and and hope for for travel and for the world after sort of a uncertain and scary year that this year has been. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, I guess we'll certainly, I think this winter will be interesting. Um, but hopefully in six months from now, we'll know more <laughs> and have a better sense of where things stand. And what, hopefully. What might happen. Uh, okay. I think that does it. That's our show. Thank you for listening and make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at yesterday in Trav. We'll be posting about future episodes as well as updates on what's going on with travel today and watch your feed for the next episode, which we haven't decided <laughs> on what we're doing yet, but we'll, we'll have, we'll know soon. Be something great. Um, all right. So emails with feedback or episode ideas at yesterdayintravel at gmail.com. And please, if you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend, review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us in your feed. Thanks. And we'll be back with more soon.